If you notice in your bulletin, uh, let me bring that to your attention while I'm thinking about it. Um, turn in the back of your bulletin just for a moment. Uh, the session, myself, thought it was a good idea to perhaps, uh, for further reflection, just to help you think through some of the implications, both doctrinally, what to believe, and then also what duty God requires of us in light of that doctrine. We would put these questions in here. So these are questions that I'm going to be putting in the bulletin uh, in the coming weeks as we work through Hebrews, uh, usually about three to four, and see how, somehow tie it to the confession of faith, whether it be the, the, the confession itself or the larger and shorter catechism. We wanted to do this just to help aid you in your own thoughts uh, and work uh, in your own devotions as you think about the, the implications of the sermon throughout the week. And fathers, it might be a good thing to incorporate into your uh, weekly worship as well as you think about uh, the book of Hebrews. And I would encourage you uh, to re-reading the book of Hebrews. It's usually it's 13 chapters. It's about 40 minutes to run it from uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through the end, chapter 13. Uh, and you'll find it very encouraging. And I think as you read it, uh, one of the things I think is so beneficial when reading an entirety of the book is you get the, the, the whole lay of the land. You get the, the macro picture of what God the Holy Spirit is intending, particularly as he breathes out his word, uh, supervising, overseeing the, the, uh, the, the word as it's being written by the, here in Hebrews to the, to the preacher. We don't know who the author is. And I'm going to speak to that in just a moment. But uh, let me encourage you to be reading Hebrews as we begin uh, working through this book in the weeks to come. Uh, let me pray for us, and then I'm going to read uh, just the first paragraph here. Uh, it's one sentence in the Greek, about 73 words, uh, very similar to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Uh, let me pray for us. Our Father, we come before you, we humble ourselves before this, your holy word, asking that you would come in the power of your spirit and be our teacher. Lord, you promise us uh, that you will be where two or three gather in your name, there you will be, Lord Jesus. So come, Lord Jesus Christ, uh, enable me to make much of you, uh, Lord Jesus, and your cross and your finished work as you sit now at the Father's right hand, having accomplished all that the Father gave you before time, uh, in time and space, you accomplished it, and now the Holy Spirit comes and applies it to our lives. So we do pray and ask for wisdom. We pray for uh, the Spirit to, to lead us into all truth. Uh, Failing today, we pray that we would look unto him who is the author and the finisher of our faith, the one who speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, even our Lord Jesus. Lord, give me courage and wisdom to proclaim your word faithfully uh, and effectively this day for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Long ago, or formerly... At many times, or in many parts, repeatedly, in sections, as it were, at many times and in many ways, various modes and manners, God spoke to our fathers by or through the means of the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also or also he created the world he is the radiance of the glory of god and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power 
after making purification for sins, he, that is the Lord Jesus, David's heir and son, the Son of God, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, may he add his blessing as we commence studying this marvelous book. I've entitled the sermon uh, this morning, or the series, Hebrews, Jesus is Better, an introduction. Today is what I like to do, an introduction to God's final word, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So today what we're going to do is just begin looking at it from 30,000 feet, get a lay of the land, look at the background, the context, and then just ever so briefly just take a quick look-see at verses 1 and 2. So my hopes of having it done in 25 sermons is, is diminishing by the minute uh, as I work through this text. It's a beautiful text, and I do pray it's your bl- a blessing on you. So let me give you a little bit of the background. The year is approximately 65 A.D., It's been about 35 years or so since the Lord Jesus has ascended and sent the Holy Spirit there at Pentecost. Some of the original 12 apostles are still alive. However, most of the Christians are now second-generation Christians. They have come to faith through the eyewitness testimony of those who saw all that Jesus did and said in his ministry. The temple in Jerusalem is still standing, although there are hints throughout the book of Hebrews that its, its fall and its days are numbered. All the while, the old, old covenant Judaism continues as before, but not all the Jews are following the old covenant ways. A great many of them have become Christians, but are now struggling as they're facing ongoing persecution for their newfound faith in Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And although they have not yet shed blood, the persecution is intense. It's both social and economic, causing many of them to drift away, to to reconsider whether Jesus is worth it. Is Jesus truly better than what we had under Moses and the Old Covenant? Some of the believers there have begun to forsake the assembling of themselves together on the Lord's Day as the cost of following Jesus intensifies. It's to this struggling group of Jewish Christians that the book of Hebrews is written. While the book does not tell us exactly where they are, some of the references to the Jewish rites and ceremonies and sacrifices and the temple itself, many believe that it could be Jerusalem, although the end of the book would lead us to believe that the believers there are at Rome. We're just not exactly sure. We don't know that exactly sure. Well, who wrote the book? Well, wouldn't we like to know, right? Unfortunately, it's not clear The writer does not give his name. There are no um, opening greetings, nor are there closing remarks that identify who the actual author of the book is. However, there are no shortage of candidates, right? Barnabas, Luke, one of the popular names today that's being thrown around in the academy and the church is Apollos. In the book of Acts, it is said of Apollos, uh, he was eloquent and powerful in the scriptures, This was Luther's choice, and many of the reformers uh, chose Apollos, but we're not exactly sure. Throughout church history, many have believed it was written by the Apostle Paul. In Hebrews 13, 23, the writer mentions Timothy, one of Paul's closest companions. I would also mention that whoever wrote it was well-educated, and they had a uh, tremendous knowledge and comprehension of the Old Testament. 
Now, Paul would fit that bill, but when you come to texts such as chapter 2, verse 3, where the author states that he received the gospel by those who heard it firsthand, that would seem to suggest that Paul didn't write it because Paul goes out of his way over and over again uh, to say that he received the gospel firsthand from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You might remember in Galatians chapter 1, Paul said he received it from Christ himself. The bottom line is we don't know. Uh, Origen says the writer to the Hebrews is known to God alone. And even the title itself was added by the early church 100 years after the book first appeared. Well, what's the purpose of the letter? Why was it written? Uh, Most believe Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who had come to profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as God's Messiah. But soon after their profession, they began to suffer persecution and economic hardship. Since Judaism enjoyed the protection of the the Roman state and civil laws, if you will, the Pax Romana, some of the new believers here were tempted to return to the old ways, to go back to Moses, back to the old covenant, back to the types and in shadows where it was safe, where there was acceptance and familiarity, back to the religious life under the old covenant. The writer describing his letter as a brief word of exhortation encourages and warns Christians not to fall back from faith in Christ and exhorts them to press on to spiritual maturity. Now Hebrews is not so much a theological treatise. That's the way we're typically apt to look at the book, to think like Romans, right? Wrongly though, I believe, to think of it merely as just this theological systematic outlay of doctrine. While it is that, Here, it's better understood as a sermon. We have a pastor who's writing to people he cares immensely about as they're wavering, they're faltering, as they're thinking about persevering with Jesus, whether to continue on with Jesus or to go back again to what they're familiar with, to uh, an incomplete word, that word of the old covenant. And he exhorts them to continue. You see, the preacher wants these struggling Christians established. He wants to see them established in the finality and the superiority of Christ to everything that came before him in the Old Testament. He does this by way of laying out a a, a theologically rich Christology. He lays out these great doctrines concerning the person and work of Christ, all with the intention to draw on the implications of that doctrine for life and for godliness in this present age in which we find ourselves. He does this by way of contrast, comparing the the old covenant and the way God worked with his people in the old covenant to the way that he works in the new covenant, showing that Jesus is better, he's superior. Now let me give you a taste of what I mean when I say that the, the author is seeking out to paint this portrait, that Jesus is better. He is God's final word, He is God's ultimate revelation himself in his person and work to all that preceded him. Now, this mic sounds awful loud today while I stop here just for a moment. Is it loud? No, it's not too loud? Okay, it seems loud to me. So, But let me give you a taste of what I mean. I'm going to lay out before you some text in the book that are going to show you by juxtaposition how Jesus is better, superior, to all that preceded him. This word better and superior is used approximately 13 times. Now, I'm not going to give you 13 verses, but I just want to give you a few of them. In chapter 1, verse 4, concerning the Son, 
in comparison to the Old Testament prophets, listen to what he says, having become as much superior, better than, to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than they. Hebrews 7.19, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Hebrews 7.22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much better or more excellent then the old, as the covenant he mediates, is better since it is enacted on better promises. Now, it was necessary, according to Hebrews 9.23, for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Hebrews 10.34, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And then Hebrews eleven sixteen. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And then lastly, Hebrews twelve twenty four. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So you see, it's better. It's better. He's putting out the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ to all that's come before him. To Moses, to angels, to Joshua, to Aaron, to the old covenant, to all the types, to all the shadows, to the, to the blood of bulls and goats that cannot take away sin, that cannot make a guilty conscience clean. Jesus is better. That's why I've entitled the whole series, Jesus is Better, the book of Hebrews. And even when the word better is not used, the theme of superiority of Christ to all that preceded him is present everywhere throughout the book right? Jesus is better than the Old Testament prophets. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Joshua. Jesus' priesthood is better than that of Aaron. Jesus' blood inaugurates a better covenant on better promises with a better hope and a better tabernacle. Saints, there's no comparison. Do you see the implication? Why? Why, oh, why would you return to that which is inferior rather than pressing on in him who is better than all that preceded him? Why would you go back to painting with numbers when God has given you a Rembrandt? Why would you do this? How foolish Right? It's very similar to the, the argument that Paul makes in Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Did you receive the law, rather the Spirit, through the works of the law? Or by the hearing of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? You see the implication? It's the implication the apostles make over and over and over again. That Jesus is God's ultimate Revelation, 
that Jesus is better in all that he does than all that preceded him. And let me just put this caveat on it because I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying when I say that Jesus is better than every type and everyone in the Old Covenant. Everything God did and provided for Israel in the Old Testament was very good and served the very purposes of God for his people. Nothing God gives his people is bad. It's not that the law is bad. The law serves the gospel. The civil law, the ceremonial law, the moral law all point to the telos, which is Jesus Christ, who is, according to Paul in Romans 10.4, the end of the law, i.e. the purpose of the law. In saying that Jesus is better, I'm saying that all the Old Testament rituals, all the Old Testament shadows, all the sacrifices, promises in the Old Testament were incomplete. They were given to prepare for the arrival of God's Son, His final word. These were types that foreshadowed the substance of the one covenant of grace, which is in Christ alone. They were all good, but the preacher to the Hebrews wants us to see that Jesus what, church? Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. Now think of it this way. Let me give you an illustration, lest I'm not clear. I don't think I have not been clear, but let me give you an illustration. Think of it like this. You want to build a house. You want to live in this beautiful home. Fathers, husbands, your wife is consulting. She's told you the house that she envisions. You go out and you secure the services of an architect, right? The architect has been asked to construct this new home. The architect will often, if he's a capable architect, builder, will often build a model to scale prior to constructing the building itself. It helps to lay everything out, to get, to get a sense of, of what the rooms are going to look like. What's the, the bathroom going to be? What's the proximity of the bathroom to the bedrooms and the kitchen? How big is it going to be? what the home might actually look like and eventually look like when it's finished. But when the new home, right, is completed after about a year and a half, what do you do with that model to scale? Do you move into the model to scale? Is that what you do? No, beloved, you, you take the model apart. You disassemble it. And the architect's office is over there in the corner. This is almost like a trophy of a home that he constructed and built. Oh, yeah, yeah, we used that. that was, we, I built that home over in Windsor Farms. Yeah. Three million dollar home. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. You don't move into the model to scale. You set it aside. All because that to which it pointed has now arrived. You don't need the model anymore. You, you don't need Moses anymore. You, you don't need those daily sacrifices every day that didn't cleanse your conscience. You don't need those priests who, who lived 80 years and then one day were called home. You don't need that piece of granite called the temple anymore. 
because it was just a picture book. It was a model to scale. God has spoken ultimately in his son. He is God's purpose for the salvation of his people. He is the very representation, the exact image we're going to go on to see in Hebrews of who God is. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. He is the very agent through which every galaxy was created. Every grasshopper has its being and purpose by the word of the living God. It stains it. Every ocean, every creature in all of the universe, every black hole, every supernova, all is being sustained by the word of the Son, the word of his power, you see. Beloved, now that Christ has come, a, a new age in redemptive history has begun. All the scaffolding, right? That's what it was. The, the scaffolding of the old covenant is now obsolete, right? It's obsolete. The types now give way to the reality, God's final word in these last days. And you might be asking yourself, how is this going to aid me and help me in my Christian life, pastor, as you drone on? Speaking about the absolute nature of the old covenant, all of its shadows and types. How is that going to help me with those three kids who don't want to listen to my voice? How is it going to help me in a job that has no future? I'm not very satisfied with. I'm not very happy. How is it going to help me to get through that doctor's visit this week? Right? I'm not a Jewish Christian believer. As far as I know, I'm not going back to the Old Testament types and shadows. Let me just say this to you if you're asking and posing that question to yourself. The supremacy of Christ presented in the book of Hebrews is the very thing, the only thing that's going to empower you to keep you from turning from Christ in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the temptations to turn away, to give up and to forsake the Lord Jesus Christ in this present evil age. You see, only in Christ, his person and work, his beauty, his goodness, and his truth, can you find the one thing that will equip you to make hard choices that are required of you to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Only a greater beauty can drive out lesser beauties. Only true glory can drive out vain glory. He is the beautiful and he is good and beautiful enough to capture your heart and affections in this broken world. While it is true that there are pleasures in sin for a season, the only way you're going to consistently say no to sin is to see Christ as better, as superior, as more beautiful, more lovely than those fleeting pleasures of sin. And saints, there's no place better in the Word of God than to see the person and work of Jesus Christ than the letter to the Hebrews. And you know what I'm really excited about? That as a preacher, I get to preach Hebrews. Thirteen chapters manifesting, declaring the glory, the beauty, and the goodness of God in Jesus Christ. The very smile of God on his people, that he's better 
He's better than the fleeting pleasures of sin. That His beauty is more alluring, more attractive. God in His providence has given us 13 chapters to do that. And then perhaps secondly, let me ask you this. Not only how Christ and His beauty is going to get you through the trials and the temptations, right? Not just wanting to walk with the mob and the mob mentality, but to stand and to stand alone for Jesus Christ as He calls you to stand. You read the stories of the martyrs. You know how they stood? They stood looking to the author and the finisher of their faith. They saw Him as better, better than life. So you take my life. So you cut my throat. Give me Jesus. You give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but you give me Jesus. He's better. He's true. He's good. He's better than than Bitcoin. He's better than Chevron that gives a high dividend stock. He's better. He's better. It's better than that lustful look. He's better. He's better. He's more glorious. He's eternal. He's unseen. Yes, I know. And I know it's hard. And I know you struggle. But don't drift. Beware of drifting. That's what happened. They were drifting. Meandering. It's like a little sailboat on on a lake. No rudder. It's not blowing. Just being tossed. Are you drifting today? Is your Christian life just drifting? You're just drifting along lazily, haphazardly? Look to Jesus. Jesus is better. Not only that, is Jesus better? You want to understand the Old Testament? You want to understand all those types and shadows in that confusing book called Leviticus? And Nahum and Micah and Hosea and Deuteronomy and Exodus and Genesis and on and on. You want to understand? Get in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is the best thing ever written on the Old Testament. How to understand it. The best commentary you'll ever read has been written already by the triune God in his own word in those 39 books. You'll understand them, those 39 books in light of the 27. That final word, cast his light. He's the spectacles. Christ, who is better, helps me understand Genesis to Malachi. I put on Jesus Christ, and I read Nahum, and I understand the wrath of God. has been propitiated for me in the cross of Christ. I put on the glasses of Christ, and I go to Genesis 22, Where Isaac asked Abraham, Father, I I see the flint and I see the wood, but where is the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide the lamb. Yes, I see him. I see him. Don't you see him there? The glory of the Son of God as he's seen in the book of Hebrews. There's nothing like Hebrews. It's the highlight of my ministry thus far, I dare say. I'm so humbled by the fact that you've called me to preach through Hebrews. You want to understand Leviticus? Read the book of Hebrews. 
All those ceremonies, all those sacrifices point us forward to Christ, the best sacrifice, the best high priest, the only mediator between God and man. Maybe you're confused this morning about what the Lord Jesus is doing right now in heaven. So he's ascended. Yes, he sits at the Father's right hand. What is he doing? What is his present ministry? Isn't it complete? What is he doing? The book of Hebrews tells us that he's making intercession. He's he's pleading his merits for you that you might not quit on him. Because he's not going to quit on you. You see, you're prone to leave the God you confess to love, as the hymn writer says. So am I. But Jesus Christ will never leave you nor forsake you. Father, you gave them to me before time began. I bled and died for them. You bring them all the way home. You bring them home. All the way home. You see, this is what he does. Hebrews tells us. You see, again and again in Hebrews, the preacher exhorts us, consider him. I don't care what the spiritual illness is today for you. Whatever it is you're going through, whatever doubts that you have, every spiritual illness is attended to by the antidote of a better sight of Christ. Hebrews again and again and again is always holding up Christ and all of his beauty That's just the introduction. We haven't even commenced the first verse. So let's do that. Let's look briefly at two verses, just two this morning. Opening up this first paragraph, some of the most theologically rich and most eloquent words in all of language. Like the prologue of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Well, Hebrews can hold its own with John, can it not? Verses 1 and 2. Long ago, or formerly, look there in the Word of God. It's imperative that you have the Word of God before you. Long ago, or formerly, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. I want us to notice two things very quickly here this morning. Notice this, and you might be apt to forget it. And not notice it. You know what happened? God spoke. Don't miss that. God is a speaking God. God is a speaking God. He's not mute. He's not deaf. He he hears and he speaks. And notice that the Bible never sets out to prove God. It assumes him. There's a God. We all know this. Your very conscience knows that there's a God. The working presupposition of the Bible is that God is there and he's not silent, as Francis Schaeffer would say. He's there and he's not silent. The heavens declare him. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day unto day they pour forth speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no voice. There is no corner of the universe where his voice is not heard. We can't claim ignorance. 
Paul says about this revelation revealed in creation in Romans 1.20, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that all of us are without excuse. There's not a human being on the planet who's ever lived or ever will live who doesn't know that there's a God. Therefore, we're out without excuse. But not only has God spoken in the creation and in general revelation in the theater, as Calvin would say, the, the theater of general revelation, God speaks. Can't you wait to get outside and see it? Oh, that the windows were clear. But then we'd be so apt to be distracted, right? And not listen to the word, the written word. He's also spoken there in special revelation. So he's revealed his character and nature and salvation uniquely in his son. Notice what he says. Long ago or formerly, that is in, in time preceding the coming of Christ, formerly, long ago in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, God spoke. How did he speak? At many times. Literally, this phrase, at many times, means in many parts, in, in fragments. That it's not all at once, right? It, it's, it's like here and, and there and, and here and there. But God spoke progressively. There's a progressive nature to Revelation. It, it builds, kind of like a, an acorn builds to a little sapling, to a tree, to a mighty tree. You see, and it's organic, and it's progressive, and it's sublime. And if you're too sophisticated and not childlike enough, you'll miss it. He also spoke, notice what it says, not only in, at many times, notice he spoke in many ways or in different ways. That is, in different modes or, or manners. In past, sometimes God spoke with an audible voice. God spoke in the Old Testament in dreams. God spoke in the Old Testament through visions. At Sinai, we're even told that God used his own finger and wrote his holy law on granite. God is a speaking God. He manifests himself. He wants to be known. Isn't that amazing to you? That the God that you serve, that the God who is, the God who speaks, wants you to know him. He, he wants you to know him. He's not waiting for you to do anything. He's already coming to you saying, know me. Know me. Possess me. Now, most often in the Old Testament, we know that God spoke to our fathers. And when it says fathers there, you're more apt to think the patriarchs. While it does mean that, I do think it means more than the patriarchs. When it says fathers, I think he's speaking in the totality of the whole Old Testament. Not only Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as fathers, but Isaiah, Amos, Judah, Issachar, right? All the fathers 
right? But as great as the Old Testament is, notice this. Listen, the Old Testament is incomplete. It's half of the story. It's like a semicolon at Malachi chapter 3, right at the end. It's a semicolon. It's not a period. You know why it's incomplete? Because God had more to say. God had more revelation for his people. An ultimate revelation for his people. That leads us secondly. Not only has God spoken in the prophets in the Old Testament, God has spoken to us in his son. He goes on, the preacher does, in verse 2. Notice the juxtaposition and the contrast in verse 2. Right, he spoke by the prophets or in the prophets. And then what's the next word? Verse 2. But, right, you see, he's drawing the contrast. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Beloved, in these last days, and before I go on, I must explain last days. Church, listen. We have been living in the last days since the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if somebody asks you on the street, are, are we living in the last days? Yes, we are living in the last days. We've been living in the last days for over 2,000 years. Now, are we in the last of the last days? Now, that's a valid question. I don't know the answer to that one for that much. Not even the Son himself. Only the Father knows. Right? When the Son will once again appear, not to take away sin, but to bring salvation for those who continue to look to him as they live out this pilgrimage called the Christian life in this present evil age, even as they grow weary with weak knees and hands, feeble knees, right, they continue to look to him. God has spoken, notice what it says, definitively and finally through the revelation of Jesus Christ himself. Unlike God's revelation in the Old Testament, the New Testament revelation of the Son is complete and superior to all that preceded it. There's a continuity with the Old Testament and New Testament revelation, but there's also a contrast. You see, now this is the important part to hear this morning. The Son is not just a prophet. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God of God, begotten, not made, the Lord Jesus Christ, incarnate, is not just a prophet. He's not just an instrument through which God speaks. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, is himself the revelation of God. Don't miss that. He himself is the revelation of God. For you see, as great as God's revelation was in the Old Testament, revealed in many times and many ways, it was not God's final word because that word was incomplete. And this is exactly what the original readers needed to hear, who were in danger of turning back to the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. They were in danger of drifting away because they were failing to heed the word that they first heard and believed. They began well. But in a race, does it matter really at the end of the day how well you begin or how well you finish? Do you ever remember, well, he began so well. No, you, you remember finish. 
crown, the, the garland, the reward. That's those that you remember. You see, these believers like us needed to understand that if they returned to Moses, they would be going back to an incomplete word. That word, as great as it is from Genesis to Malachi, is incomplete. Why would you go back when God has more to say? Let me lead you with this. As we think about this, I've given you a lot this morning. But I want to finish with this because I want to drive it home. Because I want you to see and I want you to sense as your pastor what the pastor and the preacher to the Hebrews wanted for those people. That they and we would see Jesus as better. So this week, in your battle with sin, in your battle with lust, in your battle with pride, in your battle with frustration and anger, that's not godly anger. In your battles with sin this week, yes, use the law. Use the law to expose that sin. Look into the mirror of the law and say, yes, this is displeasing to my Father, whose image I'm made and being remade in Jesus Christ. And learn of what God requires for you. Know the law. Know the law. Know the law. You heard that here, right? I'm a Reformed Presbyterian minister. Know the law. And while this is extremely helpful and good and right, never, ever, ever forget this. That the law, apart from the gospel, now listen, the law, apart from the gospel, is powerless. You can have the best Porsche, 911, whatever it is you think, whatever, whatever machinery you want, that machinery needs fuel to run. It can be the best looking thing in the building, but if it doesn't have fuel, it cannot run. The law, apart from the gospel, can do no good. It cannot mortify the flesh. So telling yourself over and over again this week, sin is bad, sin is bad, sin is bad. Right? You keep telling yourself that. If you do that divorced from Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of your faith, it won't cut it. Young man, when you're looking at your computer, just you, your computer and that screen, and the living God, and something comes across that screen you shouldn't look at. Now, the law can help, yeah. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Commandment number seven, yep. But you know what's going to help you put a knife in it? I mean, a big one, a big dagger, big sword, you know, massive sword. You know what that's going to do that? A Gandalf sword? Is when you see him see him whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see Jesus Christ. God's final word. Young person, when you're at school this week, maybe in a Christian school, 
And some of the kids are doing things you shouldn't do. And the pressure's on you. We need to be jealous for the hearts of our young people. What they're battling. <laughs> but when they're battling and they're willing to just stand for Jesus, you know it's going to help you and aid you. When the mob says, come on, let's do this, let's do this. Let's go with that crowd. And you know that crowd's not doing the right thing. You know what's going to help you, what's going to aid you. Yeah, commandment number one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Yep, that's going to help you. But you know what's going to help you slay that desire, that carnality, that lust in your flesh that wants to be light, that man-pleasing self. You know what's going to slay it? Jesus Christ. His beauty and His goodness and His blood and His mercy on you. A creature who deserves no mercy. No mercy. And yet Jesus comes and He says, there's mercy for you. He comes in Isaiah 55, Mr. Fender read, come without money, without cost. You come to me. You come to me. You look unto me. Not a system, not some sophistry or some philosophical paradigm. Look unto me, the Lord says. You look unto him. Because he's better. Church, he's better. Really. Kids, he's better. He's better. He'll get you home. But he doesn't do it apart from working faith to will in our lives. This is our God. He decrees the end, and he decrees the means to the end. And all the contingencies and all the secondary causes, right, in the decree of God, I can't understand it all. But he's the author and the finisher of our faith. Let's look unto him, church. Encourage each other while it is today. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Right? These are all admonitions we're going to hear in Hebrews. It's all about finishing. Completing the race. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, there is no God like you. We long to have you do business with us. You bid us to come and to know you. You reveal yourself and the things that you have made. Your invisible attributes are clearly seen, so we're without excuse, so we have no reason. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. We don't want to be fools. We've been a fool thus far. We don't want to be a fool another day. You give us eyes to see. May you regenerate our hearts, if they're not regenerated, to see him who is more precious than heaven itself. The pearl of great price, that treasure hidden in the field, even our Lord Jesus, who is better. We pray in his better name. Amen.